Welcome to the Westminster Effects Doxology Podcast, where we explore popular practices, songs, and ideas in the modern church world in the light of Sola Scriptura and Toto Scriptura. I'm Cody Fields, president of the Noseminster family of guitar effects, and you can check us out at westminstereffects.com, and make sure you join the Westminster Effects Doxology Podcast Lounge on Facebook and join in the discussion uh, for part two of this series. I don't think, have we ever done this before, recording two episodes back to back? Once at the very beginning couple times at the very beginning. That's right. Uh, So, as you just heard, joining me via the internet is... Hello, everybody. John Ross here, Westminster Effects artist, Augsburgian Christian, uh, and self... No, I'm not self-quarantined. I'm not sick. (laughs) Self-isolated? I'm not even self. I don't don't want to be here. I don't want to be home. (laughs) I want to go do something. I want, like, free Diet Cokes at work. (laughs) <laughs> Deeply concerned from Lincoln, Nebraska, John Ross. And in person, as usual, we have Bradley Cox, pastor at Res Church in Greer, South Carolina. Um, MVP of the, I still can't get that right. What is it? <laughs> it MVP what, of the National Preaching, National Preaching League. I can't remember. <laughs> and uh, Bradley introduced our guest on for the second week in a row, even though it's about 20 minutes later. <laughs> uh, we're glad to have Brian Alkin with us, uh, my pastor, my friend, uh, partner in ministry, uh, who leads a ministry called The River Upstate, which we he uh, talked a little bit about in the previous episode. So if you didn't uh, get to hear that little bio, uh, if you're picking up this episode first, it would be helpful to go back and listen for the sake of our content and the sake of knowing this guy that uh, is with us today. So, Brian, say hey to everybody. We're glad to have you back. Thanks. Hi, I'm Brian Onkin. I'm the academic director of the River Upstate. Basically, um, uh, like one of my board members uh, recently gave me for Christmas a little guitar ornament with all the strings cut off except for one because I talk about I have just one string on my guitar, Um, whether I'm meeting with people one-on-one or whether I'm teaching classes for the river or the things that I write. I am about helping people read and understand the scriptures for themselves. I have just that one string on my guitar. That's not a bad string to have, though. No. (laughs) Such a great (laughs) gift for Christmas for you. I wish people understood how much we've talked about the one string on the guitar Mm -hmm. metaphor for you. That's just that's so cool. Yeah, so... If you didn't listen to part one, go back and listen to that because this is building off of that. Uh, in part one, we spoke about uh, the purpose of the church gathered, um, you know, mm-hmm. and especially with the providence uh, of of this coronavirus thing going on. You know, most churches are going online for the next couple three weeks, um, so. We kind of have to reassess mm-hmm. a lot of things. Uh, what's really all that important? So this one is in light of that episode. Mm-hmm. So in light of the primary purpose of the church gathered, being uh, discipleship and worship. Mm-hmm. Uh, correct. Right. That's, that's what we landed on. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, discipleship, worship, and mutual ministry. I think. Yes. There's yes. got to be that. Yeah. That other piece. The, the sure. body working together mm-hmm. as a body. Yep. Um, so how does that? inform the way we think about and prioritize i mean basically everything but you could i mean you could even get into like 
church aesthetics. Right. Uh, right. You know, we you hear you always hear about the stories of churches splitting over the carpet color. Even right. Even though everybody knows that was the kind of the last straw. Uh, but lighting, sound, yep. video, music styles. Right. Uh, even whether you have a, a table like we use or a proper podium mm-hmm. or or a gigantic pulpit. Right. Or or like the old school. Um, where you actually have to ascend stairs, kind of, kind of sure. uh, pulpit, uh, or what have you. How does the fact that the church gathered is for the purpose of discipleship, mutual ministry, and worship, which unbelievers can't do, right? Um, how should that inform our choices in those things? I guess you could yeah. call those the consequences or sure. the circumstances. Sure. Um, to talk about this week, we are going to obviously have to talk about personal opinion, yeah. Because there is very little in the text of Scripture. Clearly, you could go back to the Old Testament and look at the instructions for the tabernacle and the instructions for the temple, and you would then ask: since God gave in the Book of Exodus these specific instructions for the tabernacle and ultimately for the temple. He must have intended something in the, shall we say, the aesthetics of it. Sure. Um, and I think that on a macro level, when you look at um, whether it's the the laver or the altar of burnt offering or within the holy place, the table of showbread, um, the menorah, the altar of incense, when you look at all of those things um, and try to understand try to think through what would have been like for a worshiper to approach the Lord, given that setting. All of those things there were intended to point the worshiper towards God. Mm-hmm. You know, And mm-hmm. so we, we could say that uh, the pattern of um, a worship space is, are there things that are conducive and helpful in moving people to be attentive to, to the reason why we're there, that is, why we're gathering, what what it's all about. Um, so we could start by saying that much we could say is biblical, to say that the only pattern that we have is to see worship services, I mean worship sites set up in such a way that the components in the worship setting were intended to push people in the right direction. Mm-hmm. So you talked about ascending stairs to get to the pulpit. Well, that happened post-Reformation. That right. is, the post-Reformation churches did that. Well, they did that purposely because mm-hmm. there was a privileging of the proclamation of the Word of God, the yep. proclamation of Scripture. You can think about even going back into the Gospels and see a little hint of the same kind of thing in the Gospel of Luke chapter 4, where it says that Jesus is in a synagogue and he stood up to read, and it was given to him the scroll of Isaiah, and he opened the place where it says, and he reads from Isaiah 61, and then it said he closed the scroll and sat down and began to teach. Well, that was the common expression. When you read from Scripture, Mm -hmm. because of the weight that was given to Scripture, it was appropriate to stand when you read Scripture, and then closing the scroll, then he sat down to teach, basically to say, now, you've heard from God, now I'm going to tell you my thoughts. Now, Jesus isn't the only one that did that. Mm-hmm. That was the common way that it would happen in the synagogue. Mm-hmm. So even there, you see something happening in, shall we say, the worship service that was 
expressive mm-hmm. of what's supposed to be happening here. Be attentive to this, because this is the Word of God. I'm standing and I'm reading this. I close the scroll, I sit down, and I teach. And, and, th- so, and this is actually highlighted at Res, where we stand up for our weekly Reading Scripture, sermon, sure, uh, sure. Sermon. So you do it backwards. <laughs> that's right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so that's what I'm saying. Personal opinion then comes in, and you have to ask questions about what is it in the environment or the setting that will be conducive to worship? If you go back into the into the the era of building cathedrals, the architects who designed those cathedrals designed cathedrals that intended to draw the eyes upward, mm-hmm. to draw, and they were meant to overwhelm. Yes, as overwhelm well. and cause you to look up. I mean, you walk into a cathedral, you don't you you don't walk into a square box building church very common these days, and you don't look up because it's a flat ceiling or spray painted black or and all that. You mm-hmm. walk into a cathedral, watch someone walk into a cathedral. What do they do? Immediately, they, they always look up. Yeah. Now, that was intentional. I do wonder about whether that's the right intention because that yeah. that tends to convey the idea that God is spatially distant from us. Distant, yep. But the purpose there was. Someone was thoughtful about what are we doing with this space, so yeah. we say. The, the raised lectern in a Reformation church was intentional. Mm-hmm. We're prioritizing the, the, the proclamation of the word. And so when it comes to contemporary worship space, I think those are the kinds of things that we have to ask. Are we doing things that are merely hip and trendy, um, they're the things that the culture likes. We want people to be comfortable. Or are we thoughtful about our space? Is it conducive to drawing people, moving people, getting them to be attentive to worship? Mm-hmm. So I think about little things. Um, um, you, you, you're in a worship service, and they've got the big screens up on either side of the platform, one screen has the words, and the other screens have video, live video running of the guitar player or the mm-hmm. pianist or close-ups on the vocalist. I'm pu- I'm puzzled by that, yeah, because that's yeah. calling attention to the worship leaders rather than hmm. to the worship. Now, mm-hmm. perhaps well-intentioned, but I want to go. Is that in fact the thing that is going to be most helpful to those who are worshiping? Um, Oftentimes, uh, particularly in larger churches, where the when the message is being delivered, the lights come up on the platform, the spotlight hits the guy who's speaking, and the lights go down in the sanctuary. In my mind, that's in fact exactly wrong. Because what I want when I'm teaching is for people to open the book, to read the book, to right. follow along in the text. Mm-hmm. So are you doing something that is actually conducive to what you think is supposed to be happening here? Do you want the people to be spectators? Do you want them to simply be listeners, or do you want them to be engaged? What are you doing that is, in fact, promoting worship, instruction, mutual ministry? I think that if you start to think about that, you can think better about your space. I remember talking with one pastor who said, yeah, we need to replace the seats in the sanctuary because God deserves the best chairs. It's like... You know what? I don't think God cares, cares about, about that. Chairs. Um, uh, why are you making that decision? Uh, Got to think really well about God, it. God deserves the best chairs, but he already owns all of the best chairs. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask this question because I, I feel like this has come up uh, to me a few times over the years that, you know, when you when you talk about some of the specificity 
um, in more historical settings and high church settings, sure. uh, cathedrals and whatnot. What comes to mind first for me is the formality sure. that exists in those kinds of churches and the relative informality that we see in the modern church today. Sure. Uh, um, I'm thinking about my friend Seth Kane, who's been on this podcast before, who's now an Anglican priest rector at a church here in town and you know he wears the vestments i mean right. they they the, the anglican priests put on this particular clothing and uh while the church may be casually dressed his church in particular right he is up there with his other fellow pastors priests whatever uh vested and um yep. and and there's meaning behind that there's formality in their liturgy that i think you know, we could talk about the pros and cons of all this, but I think at, on some levels it promotes more thought about the aesthetics sure. and the methods sure. and the liturgical elements of the service, perhaps more so than I show up to church to preach in jeans and tennis shoes and a T-shirt and everybody's casual on stage and we're informal in all of our uh, uh, our liturgy, sure, if you will, like you all have every, every church has liturgy. Every church, yeah. and, I, and that's kind of what I was hinting at is right. like, is there a way to be intentionally liturgical in an informal setting, just like you could be? Absolutely, if, if that's I, the right I, way to phrase it. Even. Sure, sure. I don't think that there is a church that has a regular worship service that is doesn't have a liturgy. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, it, it's because when we think of liturgy, we think of like everybody in the church has a script, and mm-hmm. we're yeah. we're going through yeah. apostles' creeds. Everybody and, does. Yeah, we, we tend to think about the smells and bells rather than the hazers and lasers. There you go. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> most, most people when they when they think of liturgy, they think of litany, uh, which although many traditional liturgies contain a litany, um, that mm-hmm. would be more a call and response uh, style right. of of reading. Uh, they are they are exclusive from from one another. Um, you don't have well, to have a, a litany to have a liturgy. Um, it's it was really interesting. Uh, for years, I taught for the Caribbean Ministry Association in the Caribbean, taking leadership training to churches throughout the region, and um, I can remember times on this island called Eleuthera in the Caribbean. It's about 100 miles long. It averages about a mile wide. At the time, there were probably 11,000, 12,000 people living on the island. And it's it's dotted with townships. They call them townships, little little, little towns, five, six, seven, eight hundred, maybe a thousand people in one or more of these townships. And on the island, um, there is both a real sense of history and a sense of belonging and a sense of family. So... Each of these little townships has four or five churches. There's a Brethren Church, there's a Methodist Church, there's a Gospel Chapel, um, there's a Haitian Church uh, for that particular township, and it's got it's 30 or 40 people. And it's really fascinating to visit all the different churches. Because of the sense of history and belonging, uh, if you grew up in the Brethren Church, that's the only church you'd ever attend. If you grew up in the Methodist Church, that's the only mm-hmm. church you'd ever attend. If you were a Gospel Chapel person, it would be very 
remarkable if you ended up going to a gospel, anything other than a gospel chapel church. In fact, most of the leadership in those local churches grew up in those churches. Hmm. But teaching across the spectrum, I visited lots of those different churches. They were all the same. Hmm. That is the same, basically the same order of worship, oftentimes the same kind of songs, the same liturgy, even though they thought themselves to be remarkably different. You know, we are very different than the brethren. We are very different than the gospel chapel. So interesting. They all had liturgy, and the liturgy tended to be the same. Yeah. It happens when I talk with pastors in Greenville here who are talking about, we want to plant a church that's that's cutting edge and for the unchurched or the de-churched, we want to do something fresh and different. You mean like all the other fresh and different cutting edge <laughs> churches that are doing, and, no and they all, in a sense, end up with the same liturgy. Yep. And I think what's sad to me about it is it's a default liturgy rather than a thoughtful liturgy. You know, do you think about why you're putting the elements into the worship service that you are. And you need to think both about why you're putting the elements in and also how do you arrange your space? Yep. You know, Are you arranging your space in such a way that it's conducive to why the church gathers? Right. You know, um, I, I, there is a, a drive these days sometimes in the larger body of Christ to be championing home, small group home church, mm-hmm. to, you know, to look at the New Testament and see in the book of Acts the fact that they were meeting in homes. Well, looking at the, the context in Acts, um, Acts chapter 2, when 3,000 get saved, get converted, it says that they met daily in the temple. They met in the. They had large group meeting. I mean, they had a, a church mm-hmm. of three thousand, and the Lord added to them daily those who were being saved. They end up with five thousand or more who are meeting regularly in a large group space. Mm-hmm. Well, when persecution arises, they're not allowed that large group space. Well, then yes, they do meet in homes. Mm-hmm. I don't know that that's the mandate. That is, in fact, yeah. what did happen. But we got to wrestle with that. Um, how how do we think about that? I don't think that I can argue from that that large group gatherings are not to be welcomed, and the only real vital way to do churches in small group. I would say I think that the life of any congregation has a, a rhythm that includes both large group and small group. But the oh, question yeah, is, absolutely. what is it that you want to do in the large group? that you can't do in the small group, and what is it that you want to do in the small group that you can't do in the large group, and then be strategic about both the setting and the liturgy, shall we say, of both the small group and the large group that would be most beneficial to the growth of the church. Good. Yeah, uh, we really see within the worship teaching and mutual ministry, there's an intermingling of all three. Absolutely. They're not standalone kind of thing. Absolutely. So I think about uh, like how worship touches mutual ministry. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could you could make a correlation to what's your lighting level and your volume level uh, for both of those. Oh, where, sure. Where, you know, if we're supposed to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs— but it's 105 decibels in there, That's and you correct. can't hear yourself sing. How can you address someone people. else? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Fully agreed. Fully agreed. If in, Yeah. We need to have worship leaders, not a worship concert. Yes. Right? So It's not cold <clears throat> playing a TED Talk. That's correct. Exactly <laughs> right. Exactly right. So are we thoughtful about what environment are we creating when we gather? And mm. that, that will with lighting, with 
whether we use smoke machines or not. Um, uh, just did you guys see the Babylon Bee, where the church is providing fog machines for everybody to have church at home? Yes, this week? yes. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's a picture of a family. Yeah. Off. It's yeah. Off. You can't. <laughs> the Holy Spirit can't move without a fog machine. So if you're having church at home, you, you know, you know that brings up another thought. I mean, while everyone is at home, I mean, when working from home, learning from home, imagine how many dinners are getting burnt, how many meals are just yes. ruined because <laughs> yes. people don't know how to cook for themselves cook anymore. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. so true. Yeah. You know, yeah. as as we talk about um, what do the elements of the worship service and the worship space do to say about why we're there. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Bradley, you mentioned this uh, this idea of formality in uh, Seth. Mm-hmm. Yes, Seth's church. Yes, um, mm-hmm. I know we had him on the show before, but that was almost two years ago. <laughs> so I'm, I'm <laughs> a little rusty. Yeah, we have. Um, you know, there is the sense of formality, and in our sanctuary service, uh, the the presiding pastor, whoever it may be. For that day is is also in uh, in robes and pyramids, um, investments and, and so on and so forth. Uh, but if we look, everything that that appears very formal is actually very intentional and not mm-hmm. necessarily formal at all. Um, it, right. It's formal. It's formal in the sense of, um, I mean, not to condone the 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 Roman practice of mass, but you know, when they raise up the the Eucharist, um, they do that because that is a that is a symbolism um, that that is in their theology transubstantiated into the body of Christ, um, not the sacramental mystery that I uh, adhere to. But um, you know, they right. they raise it, you know, up up above. Um, you know, that has meaning. The 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 stole that a uh, um, that a pastor who is robed would wear is the yoke of the burden of the gospel. They are robed because it is not them who is preaching. It is what well, is them who is preaching, but it's not their words, but it's the words of of uh, words of God through through his his holy scriptures. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the very very old tradition of churches uh, where the congregation would face east towards the rising sun. Um, you know, even to the point, you know, going back to Luther for a moment, looking into, um, oh, what's the what's the topic that he says this about? Um, uh, the dissensus uh, controversy in uh, in the Apostles' Creed. You know, the he descended into hell. Descended what does that mean? Um, Luther's response was, "We don't need to worry about that. It's enough that they learn from um, from teaching, from songs, and from the stained glass." Um, mm-hmm. I mean. Biggest cop out probably in, right. in the modern right. church, but it shows where they viewed. I mean, even something as, sim- as simple as what many consider to be an artistic flair to a worship, worship space, um, regardless of whether it has an image inlaid into it or not. The stained glass was used by the for the illiterate people That's to correct. teach them they, about they the function. wonders and work of of, of God. I right. mean, everything um, has or had, uh, had a purpose. Um, and I think that there is a false comparison, uh, that that's been going on for a while, at least in churches that have their roots in the, the 
what is perceived to be formal, uh, traditional mm -hmm. aesthetic piece. And that's, you know, like the cookie piece that we talked about last episode. It's like, oh, chocolate chip cookies, it's a smell. Incense is a smell. That's fine. We'll just, mm -hmm. it's the same thing. Or a uh, big light show. Well, you had candles, so this, this is fine. This is fine. I mean, you don't need candles. We don't need lights, but we're going to use them just like you used your candles. You know, there, there's this trend where we look at something that's been used for edification, um, and then it's almost used sometimes to then justify something else that has nothing to do with it. Um, it, 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 it. This is where... Um, when we talked in the last episode about the purpose of the church gathered and the whole seeker sensitive, um, sure. you know, thought is that, you know, when I was coming into local church ministry in the late nineties, early two thousands, um, there was all this talk about, we've got a sight and sound generation. We've got a sight and sound generation and we've got to speak their language. And if we're going to reach the unchurched, we've got to have lights. We've got to have you know, loud music. We've got to use video. And you hear, uh, we got to reach the young people because they're the future. They're the future, and we got to reach. And and that notion is so far removed from what we're talking about. The church right. historically is that everything had a discipleship rooted purpose. Right. right. Mm -hmm. uh, it it had it, it. There was a sensitivity to people and people learning and growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ through all of these elements, including right. our space and how it's set up and. It's just so different than how it's it's not you know that we can't be casual in the sense that we maybe don't wear vestments or we don't you know I mean when I first came to res I wore a suit and tie every Sunday mm -hmm. I don't do that anymore um, and that's not bad in and of itself or good in and of itself but right. it's just the whole thing about being intentional about right. all mm -hmm. these things you know and I I constantly feel the weight of the fact that the majority of people that I shepherd. I say the majority, uh, uh, more than half the people that I shepherd here, I get for 75 minutes a week. Right. Yeah. And I feel this enormous burden to maximize right. every last second of those 75 minutes. Right. Um, right. In, in every way, not just to try to be attractive. Right. But to disciple. Right. And so I, I do think that when it then comes to both the order of service and what regularly happens, what your liturgy is, um, the space that you're in, how you use the space, um, light, sound, music, all of that can be both helpful or unhelpful. Mm -hmm. um, I know that um, I paid my seminary expenses um, by doing graphic design. Um, so I worked and produced logos and letterheads and all that. And it was Fascinating to me to talk to people when I'm doing a design for them and they can tell me that they like something or they don't like something, but that's very different than saying, what do you want your logo and your letterhead to convey? You're right. Yeah. You know, um, you might like it, but um, um, to be a, a banker, there's a certain kind of presence that a banker needs to have. You don't use a, a Comic Sans, you know, font. You with never a, use Comic Sans uh, with with a cartoonish <laughs> figure. 
um, on your letter has a banker or you know an mm-hmm. investment broker. That would just not be it. It wouldn't fit what you were trying to convey. Right. And so this idea that graphic design not only has a content piece but has an aesthetic piece that goes along with it, I think is in fact how we need to think about what we do in church. Is there a content piece? Yes, the content piece is the songs we sing, the worship experience we have, the message that's brought. But are there aesthetics that are, are there accoutrements to that that both help and or hinder what it is that we're trying to convey? And I think you know, so. But I, I was going to bring up the Comic Sans thing uh, just right before you did. Um, <laughs> because oh the, the thing with that is Comic Sans, Comic Sans are Times New Roman, you know, whatever. Yeah. Same words. You read yes. the words, they're the same words, but That's they correct. change how they are perceived. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And what, one, of, one mean, of them being that no one will take you seriously if you use one of those fonts. <laughs> Unless you're <laughs> doing cartoons. Right. 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 That's true. And, and then there's the folks out of Bethel using like webdings or wingdings or whatever, <laughs> whatever those weird fonts are at the bottom of the list. But, um, you know, that's that's something that I think is is a big take home point is when content, yes, but we also have to consider how that content is perceived or shaped sure. or framed sure. by everything else that's going on. Well, so, and, so Bradley's I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh no, I, I was just gonna say and, and that echoes from my concerns from the last you know, from the last episode. Right. It's like we are a rich historical, biblical rooted in scripture church but sometimes we frame it in ways that make it seem more like comic sans uh, you know rather than helvetica Hmm. right Right. so so bradley's point about we're living in a culture that's driven by lights and sounds Mm -hmm. so should we then adopt that means of communication and i want to go well you go back and read um McEwen's book um the medium is the message he wrote this book in the advent of growing television um, in our culture. And his argument was that the medium that you use to communicate your message shapes your message. Hmm. Um, a, uh, I think it's that book where he talks about the example of uh, the, the ubiquitous sitcom, right, that became very popular in the 50s and 60s, where... You have to have, for the sitcom to work, in 30 minutes, you have to have um, a, a, a people that you relate to mm-hmm. who go through a crisis that is resolved in a, hap- in a funny way that brings them back to a point of happiness. Well, you live in a th- – you get 24 minutes to do that with commercial breaks and intro and outro. So that medium shapes what you can communicate in – those 24 minutes and he argued that the medium does affect the message so then when we talk about our culture is a sight and sound culture if we choose to adopt that medium then there are things that we cannot do that i think are biblical and must be done that is texts need to be read people need to be taught to read not just watch and if we simply take the cue from the culture what's popular in the culture then the medium that we're using to communicate is going to ultimately shape the message that we can offer in that. Which, you know, you, you take Babylon B's satirical, we're going to give fog machines to everybody so they right. can have worship at home. I mean, that's a there's a little truth in every 
you know, in every satire. Yeah, and yeah. so that yeah. that people are shaped to think that in order to worship God, I have to have uh, a stage full of musicians and mm-hmm. lights and fog machines and all of that. And I mean, we, we, hey, there's the phrase that once I start saying it, you can all finish. Because this has been a phrase that has been at the core of the church uh, for centuries. Uh, Lex Arandi, Lex Credendi, the law of prayer, or what you do in worship, shapes your belief. Right. Yep. And right. if your worship is mostly light show, if your worship services are mostly concert, right, then regardless of what that says about your soteriology, for instance, right. at the very right. least, it's going to say, hey, worship is this. Well, it's, it's Rather, interesting to me. You know, uh, if you go to a concert of a popular musician, they never put the words up on the screen. No. Nope. And yet people sing along. Yeah. How is it possible for them to sing along? Because they listen to the music. Yep. All and they've learned own. the words. They've learned the words. And so I'm not suggesting that it's wrong to put words up on the screen for a worship service. But do you ever trick the words down so that the people have to sing because they've learned the song as opposed to they're just mindlessly kind of. Wow. Th- those mm. are those are the kinds of things. Why are we doing what we are doing? Mm. Are we actually helping our people experience worship, grow in their understanding of truth and do ministry in a mutual way? That could shape the way we think about what happens in our gathering times. So let's, you know, kind of piggybacking off the last episode we talked about the fact that here we are at this time and the majority of churches across the country are having to do online services yep. um and i i've heard a lot of pastors um you know in their announcements and we're still going to gather we're just going to gather online and i i i understand i mean like I, I understand the impulse of that. Mm-hmm. Like I feel it myself. Is I want, I want my people to. I told you before we started this recording today that um, we are pre-recording our service content, mm-hmm. but we're going to stream it live at our normal service time. And the reason we're doing that is because I want to encourage and urge intentionality during this time, not lackadaisical. Right. Flippant. I'll, I'll get to the sermon or service content for my church whenever I get to it. No, right. I want I want people to guard Lord's Day worship. I want them to guard that space because I, I, as you said in the last episode, it is going to be really interesting when we come on the other side of this and what it looks like for the church to physically gather again. Yep. So, all that to say, my question is, how do we in the next two, four, eight, twelve weeks, mm-hmm. however long it's going to be? doing online services, how do we, what are some ways in which we can foster the right mindset, right. the right kind of intentionality about the church gathered right. when we can't physically gather? Okay. Um, I don't want to step on anybody's toes. Let me start by... Step on toes. You, you can step on step toes. On we do toes. that sometimes. We like, we like toes step toes. One of the things I struggle about with video campuses currently, even before the, all of this, is you show up at a campus and there's no live teaching. You're getting streaming from the mother church somewhere. Yeah. And the guy who's speaking starts by saying something like, so good to see you all here. Mm-hmm. Now, as I'm listening to that in that building, 
even though I might not be consciously doing it, I have to be thinking he's either lying or he's not really (laughs) talking to me. Mm -hmm. One of those two things has got to be true. Uh, And I I want to say, well, he's not lying. There must be people that he is seeing that he's saying that to, but he's not talking to me. And so I automatically adjust how I'm going to listen because he's not talking to to me. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And so... I wonder when you, I hadn't thought about this until you just mentioned that you still want to gather. If I were going to be doing this for my congregation, I'm not going to use the language gather because hmm. I don't want them to think this is gather. I want them to think this is, um, this is a far poorer substitute for gathering. You know, so even the way that we talk about what we do during this hiatus when we can't meet, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say we're going to gather online because I don't want them to get to the place where they think that this is equivalent to gathering. Yep. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. So even how we start to talk about this, we're still going to meet as a church. No, we're not meeting as a church. We're still going to gather. No, you're not gathering. You know, um, um, what I do with the river is we do a lot of helping people read text together. And there's a question, why don't you do this online? Because that would be so wonderful to get this this approach to reading Scripture out there. The fact is, what happens in the meeting when we open up the book together and the back and forth that happens when we're reading Scripture can't happen online. So if we were to do the reading Scripture class online, it will be a different animal altogether. Mm-hmm. So it's not that some of the content couldn't be shared, but I have no misgivings about if we were to go only online with the reading scripture class that I do, the experience of that will be fundamentally different. Mm. And I'd want to start by saying, here's the content of the reading scripture class, but it will be nothing like what you experience when we do this live. Mm. And I don't know that, I wonder if pastors who want to keep their church together are conscientious about the language they're going to use, Mm. that this is not, this is not gathered, this is not um, the community, this is this is artificial, mm. and and I think it would be healthy to keep that before our people because otherwise, you know how how many times do we meet online, three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, and start to think this is what it means to be church, this is what it means to gather, this is what it means to worship together, because we're all singing the same songs even though we're not in the same place. I'm just concerned about what's being conveyed when we do that. That's a great point, mm. and that and it's really helpful to me because, you know, um, today and tomorrow we're going to be recording this content, and I've really been wrestling with the language that I use to talk because I, I, you know, the online software that we're using um, mm-hmm. to stream the service, it has the ability to live chat, and we've we've had several video conferences with our leadership this week where we've asked them to. When the service airs, get on there, say hi, interact, amen the sermon, uh, those kinds of things, in order to, um, you know, foster some sense of connectedness, like that. Hey, we we're all doing this together. We're not physically gathered, mm-hmm. but my goal is that the majority of our church, if not a hundred percent of our church, at least has a sense for the next however many weeks, we do this together at the same time, at least, on Sunday morning. Okay, so so there's benefit to that. Um, 
But at the same time, and I'll just say this, I'll let you talk. At the same time, I, I so agree with you that I don't want them to think that this is a viable substitute for what we normally do when we gather on campus for worship. Absolutely. The church is not a building, but the church physically gathered together for mutual benefit, for teaching and worship is essential. It's not something that we can go, oh, this is great because now we can just do it this way. So so here, Bradley, as you're talking to me, mm-hmm. you're looking at me, yep. and you're nodding, and you're gesturing, and I'm responding. Um, so much of human communication includes the nonverbals. Mm-hmm. And no matter how good the screen is that you're watching, much of the nonverbal doesn't come across. Right. And so, f- sure, amen the message, whatever else you might want to do, but it is going to change the experience and that's uh, we just don't want to confuse that john made the point earlier about so how many people are not going to be cooking meals for themselves at home and burning it because they haven't been doing that <laughs> for such a cooking. long time there's a great thought how how many will in fact be able to experience even in their own family a little bit about what it might mean to be a community where giftedness is being experienced mm. if we haven't been helping them learn that in small group and in large group gathering, then at home they're going to be spectators to to what we're offering online. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, a thought just passed through my head of the non-verbals. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there are also, see, he made gestures when he said that. Oh my God. <laughs> so that, also, even though the people listening can't see it. Um, <laughs> but there, there are even people that I will interact with on a weekly basis here at church uh, who I probably won't talk to during the rest of the week, mm-hmm. uh, where you know maybe we're just not all that close, mm-hmm. but we both still benefit from that interaction yeah, absolutely. on Sunday, right? Absolutely, right. Yeah, which so. is which is it speaks to the uniqueness of the fellowship that believers have with believers, oh, right? Absolutely. Is that even if we're not the the best of friends and and all of our extracurricular curricular activities. Are done, over, to, mm. are, are, are done together, mm. I can still greet you in the Lord and be. we could have a mutual benefit that Absolutely. takes place, like Paul talked about in Romans 1, uh, because of the spiritual gifts that we each have. Absolutely. Um, yeah. we, we share life, and shared life is to be experienced. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Uh, well, let's let's move on to uh, let's step on some more toes, oh, okay. shall we? Um, <laughs> and th- this will get into a little bit of soteriology, even okay. a little bit of uh, anthropology. Um, so, for those who are uninitiated in such fancy terms, soteriology being the doctrine of salvation and how we are saved, and anthropology being the doctrine of man and and basically the nature of people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so. We've talked about the primary purpose of the church gathered, some of the things that we do that we're intentional about. Uh, what about altar calls? Uh, those are kind of an assumed thing. In, in some church cultures, yeah, in, sure. In many church cultures. In many church cultures. Um, so is should that be a thing? Um, is that a biblical thing? Uh, and what, what would you say may be the best or better methods for inviting yeah. believers to repent? Great question. Um, I have one string on my guitar. Mm. 
are, are there texts that address this? Yeah. Are there places in Scripture that we can go to look at this? Um, we've already we touched on this just a little bit earlier in the previous podcast, but if you if you work your way through the Gospels or you read through Acts, it is fascinating to see that there are no altar calls. Yeah, it is. The message is proclaimed, and sometimes the message is not even proclaimed in its fullness. But the message is proclaimed um, to those who don't know, um, and the response, in a sense, is left for the Spirit to work on the hearts of the people to then move them forward mm-hmm. in that conversation. You look at Acts 2, and Peter's, basically his entire message is, Jesus is Lord, you killed him, God raised him from the dead, and has made him both Lord and Christ. You, and that's how he closes. He yeah. closes the message with, so let all of Israel know this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. And as you read the text, it's almost like, and he's done. And he turns around, and then some, And George Beverly Shea is not there to sing, just as correct. I am. That's correct. <laughs> and, and yet... Some of the people cry out and say, men and brethren, what must we do? And then there's a response because of the proclamation. Jesus and Nicodemus comes to Jesus in John chapter 3. Mm-hmm. We know this text because of the very well-quoted verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, John chapter 3, verse 16. But when Jesus is having this conversation with Nicodemus, Nicodemus comes and says, notice this isn't a worship service. Right. This is a one-on-one encounter. Um, Nicodemus comes and says to Jesus, uh, we know you must, God must be with you because no one could be doing the things you were doing unless God was with him. And Jesus immediately says something rather off-putting. He Almost says, interrupts him. Yeah, Nicodemus, <laughs> uh, unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. And they have what is really a rather awkward conversation. Mm-hmm. Nicodemus and Jesus. Nicodemus uh, not quite tracking. Jesus telling him bits and pieces that he needs to know and finally saying, you being a teacher of Israel, you don't know these things. And there's no invitation, there's no closure, there is merely, shall we say, proclamation. He tells some truth to Nicodemus. Nicodemus doesn't respond. Jesus doesn't say, Nicodemus, why don't you close your head, bow, close your eyes, bow your head. I see that hand. <laughs> if you'd like to receive me into your heart. I don't, I don't want to diss that approach. Right. But I'm suggesting that Jesus doesn't do that. There is no place where Jesus does that kind of thing mm-hmm. in any of his gospel conversations. It isn't that he doesn't invite people to follow him, but the invitation to follow um, is a little different than, won't you accept me as your savior? I wonder if we shouldn't diss that. Like, if, we, if we shouldn't diss that well, language, I mean, like, I, I, I'm not, I'm not, not sure about it. Not saying that you're consigning people who do that to hell. No, like, nor am I like saying that that. That, pe- that there aren't people who have genuinely come mm-hmm. to salvation through someone saying, on the count of three, right. raise your hand mm-hmm. and come down, pray this prayer, and accept Jesus into your heart. I'm sure that millions of people have been saved that way. But I, do, again, back to what we've been talking about this whole episode. The medium yes. is the message. And what does that communicate? You might have somebody who genuinely is saved but has a very weak understanding of that salvation. That does affect, doesn't it, well, their sanctification on, the, on the back end? Certainly. And then to talk about this, the, the medium is influences the message. How we communicate the message influences the message. When we place the emphasis on altar call, and would you like to make a decision, I find it very difficult to think how a responder doesn't think this was about what I did. 
Exactly. Right. And, exactly. and that's is there a response to the gospel? Absolutely. Yes. So do you do something? Yes. But when we talk in terms of altar call and would you make a decision for Christ and would you come forward, and the emphasis falls on the respondent rather than the actor who is the Spirit of God who is awakening faith in in someone um, through the proclamation of the message, how I think it becomes difficult for that person who enters into Christian life thinking that I made a really good decision yeah. to not then yeah. think that the way the Christian life goes is by me making other good decisions. Right, because so. ultimately that makes the difference between you and the unbeliever something you did, That's, not something well, God did. And, and theologically, we would say that isn't the case, and even those right. who extend altar call would say that is not the case. But are we seeding a thought, or are we creating an environment where the emphasis falls on what you did? You right. know, and here's a really fascinating thing: um, in churches that extend altar calls, it's fascinating to me that they tend not to baptize people right away. Right. You then have to go through a baptism class for a week or a month or a couple of sessions before we'll actually ask whether you want to be baptized. Well, in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 respond, and they're all baptized on that day. Why does the early church do that? We could either conclude they're really naive, or they saw something that we didn't see. I think they saw something that we didn't see. That, That creates an interesting tension in me, because I grew up Church of Christ. Right. So you have, you do have the altar call, and if somebody comes forward and proclaims faith, they dunk them on the spot. Right. Now, some, not getting into the particular doctrine of doctrine, (laughs) Church of Christ, some Church of Christ insists that you have to be baptized to be saved. Exactly. And I don't believe that's the case. Mm -hmm. But why would the early church baptize people upon this experience? Because they believe it's what God did, not what the person did. Why do we have baptism class? I think because we want to know whether you're serious about your decision, whether you made an informed consent, whether you know what, you know, and so even that tends to say something about what we think salvation is all about. It's about the decision that you made, and so we take them through baptism class to make sure they understand their decision. This is where vocabulary is so important, and maybe John can speak into this a little bit. There is a difference between accepting Christ and receiving Christ. Where, where yes, Christ is received, oh. okay, but that doesn't mean that you, you know, Satan voted against you and God voted for you and you cast the deciding vote. Sure, right. it's sure. it's not it's, it's not like you've put a rib spreader on and opened up your own chest. I mean, like, come on in, right. Jesus, right? You know, right? It's <laughs> it's we are in a posture to receive by the work of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely, um, with, yeah. With our hands open after being broken down by, by the uh, by the law, our well, hands are open. I mean, some people are not broken down. Yeah, well, true. L- Lydia, in the Book of Acts, Paul is at the riverside in Philippi, proclaiming, and it says the the Lord opened Lydia's heart to believe the things that Paul was saying. That there's yep. no indication yeah, yeah. that. But this idea—I mean, go back. To, uh, that's just that's just my CFW Walther on the inside coming out. Right. That's, that's all that is. I, yes, <laughs> it does happen that way sometimes, but I don't know that there's a formula. I mean, Jesus's language is "born again." Yeah. Nicodemus gets it. Uh, uh, how does that happen? Well, Jesus explains it happens by the Spirit, 
And I, I, I love to think through. So, so what did you all do to be born the first time? Yeah, yeah, that's, I, the, yeah, that's yeah. a good point. Why does he choose that metaphor? Because it's the right metaphor, right? No one decides. I've gestated long enough. Well, Nick, um, I'm tired of being here, and I need like, to get out. Can I enter? Can I enter once again into my mother's womb? I mean, he, yes. he gets it right there. It's like exactly. Even right. if he doesn't get it, get it. He gets that that that's analogy is going somewhere. That's true. Exactly um, right. You know, with the you know, you mentioned with the altar call, and then going on to this baptismal class uh, sort of piece. So, with my upbringing, I I had never ever once even a little bit seen an altar call. I've been to plenty of Christian like music concerts, but they they were big enough festivals that didn't really happen there until two years ago. And I went to a Planet Shakers concert at a church in town. And Planet Shakers, if you're not familiar, is a, is a church and a music group out of, uh, I think it's uh, Melbourne, Australia. Um, Pentecostal. Um, yeah. Uh, All right. To, My background. To, uh, yeah, yeah, man. Bring in, Luther's bring in background. Luther's background. He wrote the hymn, right? The spirit and the gifts are ours, right? There you go. John, well, John's a Pentecostal waiting to happen. <laughs> yeah, I just I just keep it hidden a little bit. Okay. I'm, a, I'm a closet Pentecostal. Um, well, that's I'm a closet nationalist. That's what Yeah. So... Planet Shakers, they did this song called The Anthem, which is a beautiful anthem, as you might expect. But it's it's a powerful song. I mean, the chorus is hallelujah, which I know I'm not supposed to say during Lent. Um, you have won the victory, hallelujah, you have won it all for me. Um, which, but nonetheless, powerful song. Instrumentally, yeah, it, it's, you know, it's, not, it's not perfect, right? Yeah, but that's fine. It, it, it ramps up musically, um, lyrically, and then the band drops back down. And then their their youth pastor, who's also their drummer, who's like on point with the drums, um, gives his um, Jesus uh, speech. And it's short. I mean, it's the sinner's prayer. And it's like, you pray a sinner's prayer, you come on up. You come on up. And I'm like, holy smokes. I've never seen an altar call before. Like so, I, I went from like, I, I went from like music aficionado to um, like boom theology nerd, and like this is great, um, you know, because I, I can see I've never seen one in person. And uh, but what I noticed was my kids were with me, at least my, my boys, and they're like, "Daddy, do we need to go up?" And I'm like, "No, no, dear." Um, but the reason for the class afterwards makes sense if you are soliciting participation in said altar call with emotional manipulation. Now, I'm not saying that that's what everyone's doing. Yep, yep, yep. I'm saying that's what happened there. Right. Like the music was so powerful. Sure. The, 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 the way that the message was presented was so powerful, and it was it was good. But you know, it was come up here, accept Christ, give your life to right. Christ, so on and so forth. It just which cuts to which cuts yeah. to even like the the origin of the altar call we're 
Charles Finney said, you give me 10 minutes alone with the guy, I will produce a decision for Christ. Well, Finney, Finney was the one who said that if revival happens, it's up to us. Right. right. So, so there is a theological problem there with right. Well, now, it, I don't want to right. diss the baptismal class in the sense of, I want people to hear the gospel. I actually yeah. think that if you have an inquirer who thinks they've made a decision, the baptism class may be the place where they hear the gospel. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, um, baptism is not a saving act. Um, lots of people, even churchgoers, don't understand what the place and purpose of baptism is. But it's about identification with Jesus. Right. Um, it is John, not a, old Lutheran John is having an aneurysm. Right. At the end of it, I'm it's, not. I'm. It's. It's not I'm a saving nav- act. I'm easy, navigating easy. easy there, preacher. Easy there. <laughs> it is not a saving act. Yeah. But for someone to then publicly acknowledge their relationship with Jesus, I want them to know what they're acknowledging, not for the sake of their decision, but I don't want them to naively think I'm in if they're not. So. I'm not opposed to having an inquirer's class, some, you know, have some conversation, but I am fearful that sometimes it gravitates in the direction of it's about what you did. Yeah. So let, let's let's get really pragmatic here. Okay. All right. Um, you said Acts two, three thousand were converted mm-hmm. and they immediately baptized them yep. because they must have seen something. Right. So the 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 inquiry was, what must we do to be saved? Peter's response mm-hmm. was, repent, all of you, and believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Right. You can be baptized. So um, to, to use some Piper phraseology, in, oh our culture, in our culture, we don't tend to fill up the words repent or believe with all that Scripture intends us to. Okay. Uh, we're, we tend to be very casual or even misguided in our understanding of what those sure. words mean. Some people believe that repentance would be, I'm sorry. Right. No, that's not what repent. That's not all that repentance is. Uh, believe. I believe it's going to rain today. I believe this fog outside is going to dissipate when the sun gets up good, uh, as opposed to what it means to believe on the Lord Jesus that right. you might be saved. Right. So the question is, not that we can't recapture the depth of meaning of those words mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. people, but it might take more than a five-minute gospel presentation to do that. Well, so, yes. so it takes me a long time to get to my questions, doesn't no, it, Cody? No, you're so, okay. so <laughs> does the crisis moment, when we think about a, cor- a corporate evangelism, we typically think of a crisis moment like sure. the ones that Finney, sure. Finney promoted and Billy sure. Graham kind of took to the next level. Right. Uh, again, not dissing Billy Graham right. altogether, but does the crisis moment work? Is it is it helpful or should we, when we make our gospel proclamations in the corporate setting, invite people to a conversation rather than to an altar call. And see, that that would be the way I would lean. And here's two reasons why I think that. One, if um, if you read Acts chapter 2 and Peter's message, um, you also notice, you can, you'll also notice that Luke says that 
with many other words, Peter was saying to them, be saved from this generation. So true. So we are not given exhaustively everything Peter said, Mm. but we are given the substance of what Peter said in that message. And Peter, in that message, proclaims the good news about Jesus in a way that you typically don't hear the good news preached. He talks about... The life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, Jesus' receiving of the Spirit, his bestowing of the Spirit, and his promised return. And typically the altar call is given, Jesus died for your sins. Which means what we're offering people is basically a very truncated understanding of what the good news really is mm-hmm. all about. Mm-hmm. And so when people do respond in a crisis moment, maybe they're not responding to the gospel do people have crisis moments where the lord is working with them and they need help yes think about the ethiopian eunuch who is riding from jerusalem back to ethiopia and the spirit tells philip to join himself to the chariot the guy's reading scripture he is not yet saved he is in fact being drawn he is reading scripture he's reading isaiah 53 Mm. And Philip asks him, do you understand what you're reading? And he goes, uh, no, how can I unless someone explains it to me? Well, he has he's having a crisis moment as he's reading Isaiah 53. Right. And before it's all over, he's going to get baptized. Yep. But what happens in between the crisis moment and the baptism is Philip preaches Jesus to him beginning in Isaiah 53. Hmm. Cornelius has a crisis moment in worship, kind of, as a God-fearer. He's crying out in Acts chapter 10. He's crying out to God, and God sends an angel. Says mm-hmm. Cornelius, your prayers have been heard, but you need someone to explain this to you. So you need to send to Simon's house to find Simon the Tanner's house to find this guy named Simon, who's going to tell you what you need to know. Mm. And so then Peter comes and proclaims in greater detail what it is that was stirring in Cornelius's heart. So are there in worship services where unregenerate people might be there? Crisis moments, yes. But I think we do them a disservice if we conclude that the crisis moment is self-vindicating, you fully understand the truth because you had a crisis moment, and we do them a disservice if we think, now make a decision on the basis of what? On the basis of, I had a crisis? Philip doesn't climb into the chariot uh, with the Ethiopian eunuch and says, would you now like to accept this Jesus as your Savior? I, I don't understand. Who, who is this Isaiah 53 passage all about? What does this really mean? You know what I'm saying? Totally. And so mm-hmm. if, in fact, we offer an altar call and have not well explained the gospel, then we might be leaving people responding because they're in crises without understanding, and we might be inviting them to think it's about their decision rather than has the gospel really grabbed their heart. This would be Piper's idea. Yep. You know, to repent means to change your mind. What are you changing your mind about? What are you changing your mind about? Well, if you're changing your mind about, I really don't want to go to hell, well, that's a crisis moment. But I don't know that that's a gospel response. Yep. It's mm-hmm. fascinating if you read the gospel messages in the book of Acts, whether it's Philip's proclamation or Stephen's proclamation or Peter's messages or Paul's messages. Two things are absent. There's no personal testimony. Let me let you know what Jesus did for me, and he'll do the same for you. There's none of that. And secondly, there's no message about don't go to hell, go to heaven when you die. Mm -hmm. Neither of those things are in the gospel proclamation. Mm -hmm. It's about who God is, what God is doing in the person of the Son to awaken spiritually dead people to life. And it's proclaimed. 
And because God backs up his word, different than my stories or my testimony, because God backs up his word, when the proclamation is made, sometimes 3,000 respond, sometimes one woman responds, but... Sometimes you get rocks thrown at you. (laughs) And that's a response. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But the goal is not to to get a decision. Mm -hmm. The goal is to proclaim, to announce... Right. I know I know John has to bounce off here pretty soon. Yeah. Uh so let's let's do one more question sure. uh quickly. So we're talking about, you know, the gospel, it's not you know, conversion is not just this decision that I make. Right. Um so we would say that God is sovereign over that, correct? I um, would say so. Yeah. And I don't so, think spiritually dead people pull themselves out of the grave. Right, right. So, And I get this question all the time. Well, if, if God is sovereign over that, then why even present the gospel? Okay. Why even give the, the, the presentation in the first place? Well, you could go to Romans 10 and hear Paul say, oh, will they believe if they haven't heard? Mm-hmm. I, I think perhaps the, the way to think, you could, you could find texts where we're, Call to proclaim. The twelve are sent out to proclaim. The seventy are sent out to proclaim. The Great Commission is a call to go out and proclaim. Um, Romans chapter ten is not an evangelistic tract, but it is about what it means to be ambassadors. And so the question is: If God is sovereign over the saving work, is He also sovereign over His intended means of achieving that sovereign end? Mm-hmm. And see, so, yeah, I think it for for someone who affirms the sovereignty of God, they might back up and go, well, so if God is going to save anybody, he doesn't need our help. Well, of course not, he doesn't need our help. Right. But he intends a particular end. The question is, in his sovereignty, does he also intend a particular means? If he, in fact, intends a particular means, then it matters if we share the gospel. Mm -hmm. A really simple example of this is when uh, Saul has his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Jesus meets him. Jesus brings him alive. Jesus actually blinds him in the process, sends him into Damascus, and then knocks on the door of a guy named Ananias, just a disciple. And Jesus identifies for Ananias that Saul is now a follower of his. He's now a disciple. He's now a believer. He's now been saved. And he says that he wants Ananias to go and pray for Saul that his eyesight be restored. And you have to ask the question, wait, Jesus was perfectly able to blind Saul, perfectly able to speak to Saul, perfectly able to awaken Saul to new life, all by his lonesome. Does he need Ananias' help? It's like, has Jesus now exhausted himself and all that he's done on the road to Damascus that he needs Ananias to step up and help him out? No. But the Lord intends for his good purposes, and I think you can look in the text and see some of those purposes, but intends for his good purposes to use Ananias in the restoration of the eyesight of Saul. Mm-hmm. So God, Jesus is going to sovereignly do that right. through Ananias. Yep. So will the Lord, well, Jesus says this. He says, um, I have other sheep, not of this flock, and I will gather them. Right. Mm-hmm. Are there any sheep that the Father has given to the Son that he will fail to gather? No. But the question then is, how does he intend to do that? Mm-hmm. I think he intends to do that through us. Yep. An angel visits Cornelius. Could the angel announce the gospel to Cornelius? He could have, but that's not angels' roles. It's yep. people's roles. Yep. That's why angel says, God's heard your prayers, Cornelius, and now you need to send for this house so that Peter can come and tell you what you need to know 
so that God can awaken, in a sense, I'm adding a little words to this, so God can awaken faith in you through the proclamation of the message. So God intended to save the household of Cornelius. Right. And he intended to do it through Peter's proclamation. So does it matter that we tell the gospel? Absolutely, because it is God's intended ends, I mean means, to achieve his end. Amen. Yeah. Any any final thoughts as we close this thing out? Anybody? Anybody? I would just say, I would just say, um, you know, I think it, for me, you know, being a part of this podcast, a big takeaway is like just be intentional. And when we we understand the theology of the church gathered, and we start to consider the methodology, uh, be intentional. Don't let the methods inform the theology. Let the theology inform the methodology. Absolutely. And um, if you're not clear about the theology. Uh, make every effort to get clear about it. Mm-hmm. Dig into the scripture, read, and right. think through. Okay, why are we doing these things? Why? Right. Why are we? Why, why? Why do we have these elements in our in our service? And what do they mean? What are they pointing people toward? What message are we communicating? Uh, it's just so huge and important. Well, I think that applies both to our whole conversation over these two podcasts with regards to the church gathered, but I think it also the whole idea of methodology and approach apl- applies to proclamation. Right? Do we think people are going to respond if we tell them a nice story about ourselves? Well, your your experience of the gospel is not the gospel, mm-hmm. and so sometimes we substitute our experience of the gospel for merely telling the truth. Yeah. And and gospel proclamation results in God awakening faith in people, and yeah. it it's very similar to: Are we intentional about what we're doing when the church gathers? Are we intentional? in our proclamation of the gospel when we're spread. Mm-hmm. Amen. It reminds me of a, uh, a Bible teacher I had at high school at, at Old Southside Christian, uh, where at a start class one day he just wrote on the board, think big thoughts about God. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, if if how we lay out our church buildings is geared toward pointing us to God, and our gospel presentation should be pointing us to God. God, absolutely. Not, not to our decisionism. Right. right. Uh, and, and it also we're not reminds the benefits me, that we reap. From yeah, mm-hmm. yes. not, not just the benefits either. Right. And and that even gets to uh, the other thing I was going to bring up is I've heard uh, James White say this several times, though I'm sure it's not original to him, is is what we win them with is what we win them to. Right. If we win them to God wants you to be happy, healthy, and wealthy, if we win them with right. that, right. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, well, then where's my wonderful plan? Why right. do we have this virus going around right, right now? Kind of thing, right? Uh, where if it's if it's God offers you Himself mm-hmm. as as both Lord and your true source source of eternal joy, mm-hmm. then that's that changes the game. Right? Absolutely, absolutely. John, you got any parting thoughts? I just wanted to to thank you, Brian, for coming on the program. My pleasure, uh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It, it was not only a a wealth of uh, knowledge and experience. Uh, but uh, you presented it in a way that I think all of our listeners uh, will uh, appreciate and, uh, and take hold of. So thank you very much. Uh, My pleasure. For yes, thank you. This morning.
Awesome. Well, let's uh, let's leave it there. You can follow us and comment on Facebook and Instagram. Subscribe on iTunes and Spotify and leave a five-star review. We don't care if the five stars are honest. Just give us five stars, <laughs> even if you hate the show. You can also support the show at anchor.fm where you can donate money and help us improve. And if you pledge to donate $10 a month for a year, you get your choice of a Piper Drive version 2, Wycliffe Fuzz, or Pink Treble Booster. And make sure you email me uh, when you do that because Anchor doesn't give me your contact information. So thanks for listening. <laughs>